Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're continuing on in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And in this chapter, Lord curses the priests. As we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for allowing us to come together to study your word uh, in a group uh, such as these men and ladies here. And we thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for Mark, and bless this time, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hi, Mark. Welcome back. Good evening. Yes, it's good to get everyone back together again. We had just uh, started the uh, book of Malachi and gotten through the first chapter, a very negative book as far as uh, Israel is concerned, and the negativity is going to step up a notch here as we move from the first division to the second. Uh, remember, these books were written without chapter and verse divisions they were added uh, in modern times so it was all one book or one scroll really let's begin by reading chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 please and now this admonition is for you O priests if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name says the lord almighty i will send a curse upon you and i will curse your blessing Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him a covenant of life and peace and I gave them to him this called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name true instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people 
because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. All right, thank you. Now, who is this Levi that uh, Malachi keeps talking about? Anyone uh, recall who Levi was? A priest. The priesthood. Well, he wasn't actually a priest himself, but he is closely tied to the priesthood. This uh, was one of the 12 sons of Israel, and so he, his descendants became one of the tribes of Israel. And one of his most famous descendants was a guy named Moses and his brother Aaron. They were descendants of a Levi. They're in Egypt. And uh, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, the descendants of Levi were set aside as a tribe of priests. They were not given a real estate division like all of the other Israelites. They were given cities to dwell in, and they got certain grazing privileges, but they didn't get uh, big tracts of land like all of the other Israelites did. And the descendants of Aaron were the priests proper, and the rest of the Levites were uh, supporting troops for the priests. A Levite who was not a descendant of Aaron could never be a priest, but they helped uh, serve in the temple later. They helped move all of the items of the tabernacle around when they were wandering in the wilderness. So in this uh, context, the prophet is using Levi as a figure for all of the priests of Israel. You know, everyone gets all tied up on the ten northern tribes or the ten lost tribes and the two southern tribes, but at least half of the tribe of Levi was within the borders of Judah, and so a large number of Levites survived when the northern kingdom of Israel was carried away and destroyed. And all of the priests, in fact, were descendants of Levi and not Judeans uh, proper, but they were all Judeans just because all of the surviving Israelites became known as Judeans uh, after the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom. Uh, free trivia there. All right. Now, this second uh, chapter is focusing on the priests, and it's given them a strong rebuke, and it's basically saying here, listen up, or I'm going to curse you. And this is a real strong word, this curse. Uh, this isn't wish bad things on you, but this is a execrate. This is really bad, and it's not really a threat. It's a promise, I guess. The priests were responsible for glorifying the name of Yahweh amongst the people, and they were responsible for teaching them uh, the law of God and all the things about God. They were failing uh, wretchedly in this responsibility. The work that they did was going to be set at nothing uh, in verse 3. There's some translations say, I rebuke your arm. Some say, I rebuke your seed. But the sense uh, seems to be God is going to set it, not uh, whatever their efforts are. And then and then, uh, Leslie's version is a very polite translation, but <laughs> it's actually referring to excrement, raw sewage, which would be spread on their faces at their feasts. Now, God doesn't refer to the feasts as his feasts anymore. 
he doesn't have any interest in, in them uh, whatsoever. But this excrement is going to be smeared on their faces, and you are going to be uh, thrown out with it. <laughs> uh, in other words, the priests who are supposed to be pure and set apart for special service to God are going to be defiled and cast aside like sewage. Now, can anyone think of a time in history where this actually occurred? Do we have priests like yep. this today? Two questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do, it seems. Are you referring to Babylon? Uh, no, when, uh... this was actually written after they came back from Babylon, after mm-hmm. the remnant returned from Babylon. But in other words, do, you, do we still have the priests of Israel offering animal sacrifices and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles oh. and uh, the Day of Atonement and so on today? Yes and no. They they do all of those things, but they don't don't they don't do animal sacrifices. They still have they it. still practice rites and rituals. Well, there I guess there might be somebody that's already started. Now there are people trying to get back to this, but they're not they're not really uh, doing it as such. The what they're trying to recover from was a cataclysmic event which cut off the priesthood of Israel abruptly and ended all of the temple services and all the sacrifices, and they've never resumed uh, unto this day. Although, yes, I there mean, are. The, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by Rome, would that be the catastrophic event? Yes, I believe so. And we'll see that more as we get up to chapter 3, that this is in God's mind as he is presenting this curse to the priests. The priests had special, all of Israel had responsibilities to God, but Levi, the descendants of Levi, had special responsibilities uh, with him. This is referred to in 4 and 5 as the covenant of life and peace that was with uh, Levi. And the idea was that he might respect God. The relationship at Mount Sinai is somewhat akin to marriage, and Israel is, is the bride of Yahweh, and God, more than anything, wants his bride to respect him. And so uh, in verse 5, this uh, this fear, I think, is more the idea of uh, healthy respect, not tremble or quake at the thought of, but, but uh, show proper respect for and standing in awe of my name. This is the kind of standard that the priesthood was supposed to set for all of Israel. And then here... In verse 6 and 7, it talks about the priest's responsibilities to teach the law and to set a high standard for righteousness and uprightness and to turn many away from evil doing. The priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So that's what the priests were supposed to be doing. But in verse 8, we see that that these priests in the days of Malachi have turned aside from this noble endeavor and instead have caused many to stumble in the law, and they have corrupted the covenant of Levi. So I have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have had respect of persons in the law. So again, they were supposed to be holy, set apart, they didn't have to work uh, by the sweat of their brow for a living. They they lived off of the labor 
of the other tribes of Israel and were supported by the tithing and were set apart, but now they're going to be made as filthy and low as as refuse and uh, cast aside. All right, any uh, thoughts or comments here down through verse 9? Well, of course, that uh, practice of uh, is being carried out in the state of Israel today. They have the non-working drones supported by the rest of the people who are the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox priests of Israel, the guys with the the little the, the flat hats and the dreadlocks, they are, as you described, they don't have to work. They basically are in the preaching business in Israel today. Now, I just heard something. I haven't seen the article, but this was quoted in one of the Messianic Jewish organizations. But according to what they said from Haritz, is that the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews are now going to have to serve in the military. I guess they're going to have special units designed just for them. Uh, and you know, their excuse has been that they're studying, they're studying the word, the Bible and words of God and so forth. And so it's interesting that we've got kind of reversal of this now in Israel. Yeah, well, I, I doubt many of these folks would regard themselves as priests. They are what's considered as rabbis. And, uh, for instance, when we went to Samuel's tomb north of Jerusalem, there were a large number of uh, Orthodox Jews there who were studying. There's a great research library uh, at the building. The building, half of the building is a mosque, and the other half is a is a Jewish study center, and they have kind of a replica of the tomb of Samuel, which is this huge black velvet beer over some kind of a pedestal or something. Very, very nice looking. And there were a large number of them who were there, but we did see other Orthodox Jews who were working different jobs or traveling to and from work and so on and so forth. I don't really know all the details of it, but they would never allow anyone to consider themselves a priest who could not trace their genealogy back to Aaron, and that that has been virtually impossible for anyone to do since A.D. 70 because all of the genealogical records were consumed during the war. But anyway, they're, they're, they do serve as the counterpart. The rabbis stepped in and filled in in this role of priest as far as teaching people after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Well, and, um, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, Israel being a secular state has essentially uh, set up a sort of a showcase for the rest of the world to prove to the rest of the world that they really are Jewish and furthermore that they are the same as the Israelites. So they want their Judaism to be Israelitism. And they want the rest of the world to think that, and they want to tie themselves to Malachi and all these other parts of the Bible, especially back into Genesis and, and the ages. And so they essentially have set up this showcase religion of the Orthodox who originally didn't have to work, and now they become kind of a burden onto the society, and you've got all kinds of people that are protesting and saying we have too many of them, and what, what are they? doing for us, and the secular Jews of Israel basically resent the non-productive rabbinical sect 
that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty big, really. There are quite a few of them. I mean, it's a pretty desirable job not to ever have to work and get, get taken care of and paid. Yeah, I wasn't aware that uh, there was the opportunity for, for a large number of them not to uh, have to hold down a job. Of course, they're we... full-time. They're full-time. That's why I use the term priest advisably, I suppose, but by the def- ironic definition, they're certainly not priests, but they are the... Um... Well, it reminds me a lot of preachers in this country, the ones who uh, <laughs> get paid you know, six-figure salaries to sit in their study and, and you know, prepare a sermon all week. It's really tough work. But anyway, well, how, that's... How not do... How do the Israelis handle books like Malachi that seem to condemn what they believe? Well, I I haven't had too many discussions. Years ago, I I think it was actually in Tempe, I I met a Jewish store owner, and I got to discuss the uh, condemnation of Israel in the book of Judges, and he was just, he couldn't believe that there was anything negative about Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, (laughs) it's a... It's absolutely dripping with negative commentary and condemnation, but I've never had the opportunity to discuss Malachi with an Orthodox uh, Jew, so I, I have no idea how they would do it. Of course, there are there are uh, very honest sects uh, of Orthodox Jews, and most of them are not Zionist, and they recognize that Israel deserved the great judgment that fell upon her in A.D. 70, and they view any attempt to set up anything in in Palestine as a rebellion against God and against God's very just judgment of the Israelite people for their wickedness. So, uh, you know, there there would be some uh, in both camps, presumably. Uh, There is a footnote to Malachi, but it's not to uh, the second. This is in the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, so it's it's an indication that we're supposed to believe. Uh, and it refers to the first chapter, verse 11, that talks about, we talked about it last week, I think, from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, thy name shall be great among the nations, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, saith the Lord of hosts. And the, the footnote in the Schofield Bible says, so it would have been had Israel been true to the Lord, and so it will be one day, despite Israel's past failures. This is a prediction concerning the millennial age. So that's what the Schofield Reference Bible has said. They've acknowledged that Israel didn't behave, but they do contend that this is the same Israel as they have now. And then they say, the, this is a prediction it will all come true in the Millennial Kingdom. Yeah, we're going to see more of that in Chapter 3 of the Schofield Notes, and it'll it'll be a lot clearer at the beginning of Chapter 3 what the issue is and why the Schofield Notes are are doing this. The fundamental thing, though, is that everywhere the word Israel appears in a Schofield reader's mind, that is the modern-day state of Israel. In a Christian's mind... That is the church. It is spiritual Israel. The uh, dispensationalists do not allow for any figurative language, and they do not allow for the concept of a spiritual Israel. And that uh, puts us in two different worlds when it comes to understanding God's Word. Amen.
Thank you. Sorry to bog you down there. Yeah, no, no problem. Let's. Uh, just, uh, yeah. One, one more thing. I did, I found this little piece. It's just a couple sentences long here from this Chosen People's Ministry, which is a Messianic Jewish organization out of New York. But here's a little piece that appeared on the 19th of June. For years, members of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community have been exempt from being drafted into the Israeli Defense Forces as they focus on Torah study. Now, the military is drawing up plans for a mass recruitment of ultra-Orthodox creating special battalions that will ultimately be integrated into normal combat forces. And this they, they quote from Haritz. And then, of course, their little note afterwards, please pray for the safety of those protecting Israel's borders. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they should have a little problem with thou shall not kill. Okay, well... Let's uh, read uh, verses one. 10 through 16, please. Have we not all one father... Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness because between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Great. Thank you, Leslie. All right. Um, this paragraph... Uh, starts off by going back to the original creation and the uh, at least the the brotherhood that all Israelites should have uh, one for another, but they weren't taking any of their moral responsibilities uh, seriously at all. In the verse 11, Judah has profaned the sanctuary, the the temple which we've mentioned before, was the identity of every Israelite. It was their proof that they were God's chosen people and proof that God dwelt in their midst and that they were better than anybody else in the world. And they were not treating this with respect at all. Now, we we have this idea of... Uh, 
intermingling with uh, foreigners or intermarrying with foreigners here also in verse 11. That is uh, condemned specifically during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I think the idea here that is most important is the, is the spiritual uh, adultery that is going on in that Judah, instead of being focused on their husband, Yahweh, and on the offerings to him, we've already seen how they've brought in second-rate offerings. They're, they're just trying to go through the motions of the uh, sacrifices and the services in the temple. But they are very interested in these other cultures. The idea of marrying the daughter of a foreign god, they are probably marrying into these other cultures, but they're also enamored with some of the uh, religious views and so on. So this is diluting their one-on-one marriage relationship with Yahweh. And I think that's really the point here that is in mind. Judah is another son of Israel. We already talked about Levi. Now we've switched to Judah. And he is standing in in this place for all of the Judeans who are his descendants and make up the vast majority of all surviving Israelites at this time and all the way through the time of Christ and the apostles as well. So the descendants of Judah have sore responsibilities as well, just as do the descendants of Levi. They have diluted the the covenant relationship with Yahweh. And in verse 12, they're told that the one who does this will be cut off out of the tents of Jacob. Jacob was the original name for Israel. And so all of the Israelites looked back to Jacob as their forefather. That was their one father here up back in verse 10. The one father of all Israel is Jacob. And they certainly weren't agreed in respect for God. It was just a tiny remnant who had the proper respect for him. Those who did not have this proper respect were going to be cut off out of the tents of Jacob. In verse 13, a second condemnation is brought in when they're when they're bringing in the sacrifice. God does not accept it. It's talking about covering the altar with tears. In the book of Ezekiel, there were women in the temple courtyard uh, weeping to Tammuz, which a Babylonian goddess. And uh, to cry in front of her idol was a uh, was a way of worshiping her. I don't know if that's what's in mind here or not. But they were doing something that was not focused on Yahweh, but was diluting their worship of him with some kind of regard for another entity uh, and God was not happy about it uh, whatsoever and would have no regard for any offerings brought in this manner and would not accept them uh, from them anymore. And then there's a response in verse 14, uh, you know, and the, the the Judeans keep remonstrating, you know, why would you be mad at us? We haven't done anything wrong. And so he, instead of Proving that point, he moves on to to yet another point here, which is the idea of marital infidelity. And again, certainly they were individually committing this act, uh, 
but it was indicative also of the corporate act that they were committing against God as being an unfaithful uh, spouse to him so there there is a there's a close knit relationship between God's covenant people and himself and the husband and the wife in marriage the whole idea of the family in marriage is supposed to be symbolic of the relationship that God wants with his covenant people and so those thoughts are all tied together here in this in this paragraph they were dealing treacherously with their wives uh, the wife of the covenant corporately Judah was dealing treacherously with Yahweh the husband of their covenant they were supposed to be one uh, with the same spirit dwelling in them uh, for the purpose of bringing forth a godly offspring my translation says a godly seed and the the seed that was supposed to come from the union of God and Israel was the Messiah, Christ. And God is still working to bring this about, but they weren't making it easy. So he cautions them to uh, pay attention uh, to the Spirit and to not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Uh, I hate divorce, which they called putting away or just sending away, Government wasn't involved or anything in those days, or attorneys or anything. If your wife no longer pleased you, or was, uh, well, more correctly, if she if she had committed some immoral act involving another man, well, then you could just send her home to her parents or send her away out of your house. And this sending away is what's uh, translated divorce. It's the same thing. We just have a corporate institutional version of it today. Uh, God hates divorce. And this is a very famous quote here from the book of Malachi. But the the bigger context in which this is stated is that Yahweh is trying everything he can to not have to divorce Judah. He's He's been incredibly long-suffering. She's treated him with scorn and disrespect. Uh, almost from the day they were married at Mount Sinai, and he has put up with it over and over and over again. But he hates divorce, and he doesn't want to send her away. And that's kind of how this paragraph closes. All right, any uh, thoughts here? It seems like God considers their tears like crocodile tears, as the expression goes. Yeah, there's something uh, bogus about them. There, that's certainly it. I don't. Uh, I I didn't find any kind of a reference on that specifically. But yeah, there's something uh, insincere about it for sure. Of course, the Christian Zionist response to all of this is that God shows that He's never going to give up on Israel by not giving up on Israel, and therefore He's still forgiving them, and He never did depart from them because it's not the nature of God to depart from his promise and God made a sacred promise to the state of Israel back in the book of Genesis so if you're talking to a rabbi right now that would be pretty much what he would say in my experience not that I've talked to too many rabbis but I've talked to a lot of people a lot of Christian Zionists and that's the that's the answer that they give when 
then you suggest that uh, God is finally giving up on these on this tribe. Yeah, uh, again, we we don't have a lot of common ground uh, there. But again, chapter three and four of Malachi are going to mark the dividing of the ways in black and white almost on that particular point. Okay, that'll be very constructive for us because we run into this all the time. Now, I did find one reference here to the tears in verse thirteen. One scholar has suggested that these are the tears of the wives who have been abandoned by their husbands, and the tears are are completely putting out the fire on the altar that would uh, burn an acceptable sacrifice. So that's a possibility there. But uh, there's definitely something going on with it that's causing God to be very uh, upset. All right, um, let's read these last uh, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17, please. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them? Or where is the God of justice? All right, thanks. So this is kind of like a banner back and forth in a trial uh, where the prosecutor makes the accusation and the defense says, Oh, you've got to be kidding. I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about here. But uh, all of these specific evils have been uh, pointed out against uh, Israel, and they have turned things upside down. As one of the other prophets said, woe to those who call evil good and, and good evil. So this is uh, the thought here in verse 17. And so he, God would like to delight in this people, but... They're so foul that he just can't bring himself to do it. And so, as we move into chapter 3, we see here what's going to happen as a result of this. I think we just have time to look at this first paragraph, chapter uh, verses 1 through 6. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple... The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. All right. We get into what's going to be happening in the first century here. 
this messenger that is going to be sent who will prepare the way before me. Does anyone recall who this would be talking about? John the Baptist. Yeah, absolutely. And no one can dispute this because <laughs> it is it is uh, stated so many times in the Gospels in black and white terms that uh, the messenger who would come uh, before was John the Baptist. So even uh, Schofield himself had to admit that this was John the Baptist. Now, the second temple, which was standing in the days of Malachi, I think we've talked about this before, there was something missing from the middle of it. Does anyone remember what that would be compared to Solomon's temple or the tabernacle before it? It was Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared <laughs> oh my. Uh, at, at the time of the destruction of the first temple in uh, 586 or uh, sometime around there. And when the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple were dedicated, they saw the presence of God descend into the Holy of Holies there onto the throne, which was the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat and was the throne chair of God in a figurative meaning. Um, but when they dedicated the second temple, nothing happened. They didn't have the Ark to put in there, and nothing happened. So the Lord that they're looking for, you know, they're still waiting for him to come into his temple. That kind of brings this passage a little bit to life. And they had a long wait. God wasn't going to come back to his temple until Jesus walked onto the temple mount. But he didn't quite get a good reception when he finally showed up. But all the scholars agree, and even Schofield agrees, that this is not the coming to the temple that is in view here in verse 1. It is quite important to note that the prophets really, looking from 500 years back or earlier, they don't. They didn't really differentiate between what we call the first coming of Christ and what we call the second coming of Christ. To them, it was the coming of Christ. When when we went through the book of Daniel, we saw that uh, over and over again that it was a time of deliverance and a time of destruction and a time of establishing God's kingdom. It was all one time. It was one generation or that's the way Jesus talked about it in John the Baptist. It was it all happened within a generation. And so we see here that John the Baptist, who came before what we call the first coming of Christ, and then the second coming of Christ, are linked. Because from a prophet's point of view, looking you know forward 400 years, 500 years, that all of those events that occurred within within 40 years between, you know, roughly A.D. 30 and, and A.D. 70, that was one big event, the last days of Israel. And this is uh, very significant, and this is why so many futurists have failed to refute uh, the dispensationalists and the Christian Zionists, because they don't have it clear in their minds either. But... We're seeing kind of a parting of the ways of black and the white here. Schofield says 
the first verse of Malachi is quoted about John the Baptist. But the second clause, the Lord whom you see, is nowhere quoted in the New Testament. The reason is obvious. In everything except the fact of Christ's first advent, the latter clause awaits fulfillment. So, in Schofield's view, that hasn't happened yet, that the Lord uh, has returned to his temple. Now, that's interesting since the messenger who came to prepare the way came right when he was supposed to in the first century. But the coming that he was preparing the way for didn't happen yet, and we're still waiting for it. And that's why we have to build a new temple uh, in Jerusalem and demo that Dome of the Rock and stuff, get that out of the way. we can. We got to get it built so God can come back and destroy it. So the literal interpretation and the correct interpretation, mixing in the proper symbolism, are going worlds apart here and really dividing the ways. Again, in Schofield's comments, Malachi, in common with other Old Testament prophets, saw both advents of Messiah blended in one horizon. Yes, that's absolutely true. But they did not see the separating interval described in Matthew 13, which came about because of the rejection of the king. And and Schofield quotes Matthew 13:16 and Matthew 13:17. And when you read that, it's like irrelevant. It doesn't prove that God changed his mind and decided to insert 2,000 years into his timeline. It doesn't say that at all. You have to be wishfully dreaming to to think that. I'll just read those ver- source proof verses for you that uh, Schofield uses, and then we'll probably have to end for the night. But Jesus is addressing the multitudes by the Sea of Galilee, and uh, after he does so, the disciples come to him and ask him why he's speaking in parables. And uh, this is part of his answer. He answered and said to them, To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the multitudes, it is not. Whosoever have, to him it shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever does not have, it will be taken away, even that which he has. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And unto them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and you shall in no wise understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall in no wise perceive. So, in Schofield's mind, uh, wishfully thinking, all of a sudden God is aware that uh, the people who are supposed to anoint him as king have rejected him. And so he's got to make a last-minute change of plans and all that. But, But in the proof text, Jesus is saying that this fulfills the prediction of Isaiah. So God knew it 700 years before it happened. Does that give God enough time to uh, to make a plan adjustment? <laughs> I I think so. And anyway, Schofield goes on. Still less was the church age in his vision. Remember, the dispensationalists do not believe the church is the kingdom. The church was a last-minute substitute that was thrown out there to fill that 2,000-year gap that had to be inserted because the Judeans rejected the Messiah. And what I mean, this is ludicrous, but, but you can't even discuss this with someone 
who's been raised on a Schofield Bible because they just can't think of any other way of interpreting the Bible. The church is an afterthought. The church is not the bride of Christ. The church is not the kingdom. The church is just a temporary filler. The true kingdom will be established in literal Palestine, in literal Jerusalem, and the literal chair that David sat in will be reconstituted from the dust of the ages so that Jesus can sit in it for 1,000 literal years. This is what they believe to be true. And it's heresy is, is what it is. Yeah. The, ch- the church is God's eternal purpose. This was from before the creation of the world, God purposed to create a bride for his son that could be brought into the fellowship of the Godhead, of Godness, and share the eternal life and the love that the Father and the Son have for each other. And this is God's eternal purpose. And he fulfilled it exactly as he planned. And he had 700 years. He knew knew from before the beginning that the Judeans would reject the Messiah, and everything still proceeded exactly as God intended. But now I'm on my soapbox. But we'll we'll pause here. We're going to pick back up at the beginning of Chapter 3. But this was important enough that I wanted to kind of set the tone for it for everyone to think about as we break for the week. And we'll come back and talk about it more here next time. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. That really puts some very excellent light on why you chose the book of Malachi. And all our all the points that you cover are just fascinating. So we'll look forward to continuing on. Thank you and good night. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.